Today's episode is brought to you by the U.S. Bank Altitude Go Visa Signature Card. To learn more, visit usbank.com slash altitude go. As a traveler, it's a fact you're going to need to manage your spending in different currencies. You need a service that not only helps you send, spend, and receive in different currencies fast, but also does it without the hidden fees or exchange rate markups. This is where WISE comes in. WISE is the easiest way to connect all of your finances internationally. I've been a customer for over a decade. It's been a lifesaver for me as a traveler, a nomad, and now a permanent resident abroad. If you're a traveler who's still using your regular bank, you need to check this out. Join 16 million customers and learn how the WISE account could work for you by downloading the app or visiting wise.com slash travel. That's wise.com slash travel. Thank you to WISE for supporting today's show. This episode of Zero to Travels brought to you by the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder with seven drive modes. The Pathfinder's available intelligent 4x4 is built for even the most epic journeys. Learn more at NissanUSA.com. Although I was traveling alone, I, I never really felt lonely. I didn't feel like I was, you know, it was me against the world. It was more kind of me with the world kind of pushing me forward. And that was a really, really positive experience. Listening to the Zero to Travel podcast, where we explore exciting travel based work, lifestyle, and business opportunities, helping you to achieve your wildest travel dreams. And now, your host, world wanderer and travel junkie, Jason Moore. Hey there, it's Jason with ZeroToTravel.com. Welcome to the show, my friend. Thanks for hanging out, letting me bring a little travel into your ears today. This is the show to help you travel the world on your terms to fill your life with as much travel as you desire, no matter what your situation or experience. And today's guest certainly did a great job filling his life with travel. This is one from the archives I'm calling the greatest hits because Graham Hughes is the guest today and he is the first person, and as far as I know, still the only person to visit every country in the world without flying. This dude (laughs) has incredible stories to share, as you can imagine. Not only that, he's got really practical advice for any independent travelers out there listening who want to find ways to travel safer, uh, to want to know what to do if they end up in jail, where to carry your money, how he traveled on $100 a week, a lot of different things going on in this conversation, and I wanted to highlight this one from the archives because some of these shows, they get buried after some years, and this one deserves to be heard again. Uh, I'm also going to share my three iconic overland journeys. You may not want to travel to every country in the world overland like Graham did, and you'll hear some of the crazy experiences he had getting thrown in jail and, and <laughs> plenty of stuff going on in this chat, but we can all uh, do some of these other overland journeys that are still crazy, long, adventurous, but iconic and doable. And many people have done them. And there are three that I would consider doing in my life for sure. Also, I want to give a quick shout out to somebody in this community who wrote me a message while they were traveling overland and talked about one of my favorite parts of overland travel. 
Now, the subject of this email was Muito Obrigado. This is from Ali, who said, Hi, Jason. This email's been a long time coming. We've been listening to your podcast since 2016, maybe longer. My name's Ali, and my husband is Henrique. I'm originally from the U.S., and he's Brazilian. I'm writing you this letter in the notes of my phone while on a bus, and my friend and I are on my way to Parachi, Brazil. My friend is sleeping and I am watching the landscape change, feeling very inspired. Wanted to thank you for all the work you've done with the podcast. My husband and I have listened to it all around the US, South America, and Europe. Might sound strange, but your voice is familiar now and one of a friend. It really is the 21st century. Uh, She goes on to say, my husband and I are now at the point where we can choose where we want to live and work remotely. I feel immensely grateful as I look out the bus window and see the beautiful landscapes. We're spending three months in Brazil. At that point, can't imagine who I'd be without this Brazilian influence in my life. I say half jokingly now that I'm Brazilian on the inside. Next, we'll go to Portugal and spend two months there. Anyway, I just want to thank you uh, so much for supporting people on the path to freedom. It's been very influential and keep up the work. So thank you, Ali and Henrique. Awesome to hear from you. And I wanted to include this shout out here because that is one of my favorite parts of overland travel. She mentioned watching the landscape change. And that is one of the greatest joys to me is seeing that physical change in the landscape, giving yourself time to slowly make your way to another destination, space to think. And something about looking out the window and seeing that is relaxing, inspiring, a lot of things. And, you know, you've been there. You've been looking out the windows of the buses and the trains and had those same feelings. And it's it's part of the travel magic, really. And thank you again to Allie and her husband for being such longtime listeners of this show. Really, truly appreciate that. And please, I invite you to get in touch anytime. Jason at ZeroToTravel.com is my email. You can always leave me a voicemail with that handy link in the show notes. Now, let's slip and slide into this interview with Graham Hughes. Four years and 31 days, he traveled to 217 countries and territories overland. Insane. Enjoy the chat, and I'll see you on the other side, my friend. Ladies and gentlemen, those of you queuing up at the ticket machines, if you turn to your right, follow the district and circle line signs along the corridor, Follow the blue lines along the floor to the district and circline ticket hall. There are plenty of ticket machines available for you to use. So excited today to welcome this amazing guy, Graham Hughes, who spent four years traveling over 201 international borders, crossed by foot, bus, taxi, train, ship, canoe, whatever. The main thing was he didn't fly anywhere. He did basically the entire planet Earth all overland. On the way, he set a Guinness World Record visiting every sovereign state on the planet. And you were only spending about $100 a week. Am I missing anything, Graham? Can you give me the overview on this crazy, audacious adventure that uh, you're kind of my travel hero, man. I'm a little bit in awe of what you've done, to be honest with you. So lay it on us. Let me hear the overview from you. Well, I was I was kind of inspired by um, Around the World in 80 Days, both the book by Jules Verne and also the TV show that uh, Michael Palin from Monty Python did, uh, where he traveled around the world without flying. He had to get from London to London. Some people have been to every country in the world, but no one had done it without flying. And so I set this rule for myself, you know, I'm going to do it without flying. And just as, I don't know, circumstance prevailed or whatever, there were also some other restrictions on me while I was doing it. I traveled alone and I couldn't convince anyone mad enough to go with me. I had to do it on a 
shoestring budget because I didn't have much money and had to sort of plan everything myself. I didn't have, I had sort of my mum and dad and my girlfriend and a few other people helping me along the way, but the bulk of the sort of doing my research and sussing out which countries were open and which countries I needed visas for and all that kind of thing, that all came down to me. And in the end, I underestimated how long it would take to go to every country without flying. I thought it would take about 12 to 18 months. In the, in the end, it took about four years. <laughs> Do you think like if you knew it was going to take four years going into it, you would have gone on it? Or was it probably better to be just sort of ignorant about it, right? I think I... I might have gone on it, but I don't think my girlfriend would have allowed me. I think that was a, a bit longer than I thought it would take. And, and I wasn't that out, really, because in the first year of my travels, I went to 133 countries. And in the second year, I managed to get to another 50. And it was only the last two years of travel circumstances and things like that prevailed. And the last 17 countries that I had to get to were pretty much all islands. And I was at the mercy of, of cargo ship timetables. And also, I needed to get to the Maldives and to Seychelles, which are both in the Indian Ocean and both in the high-risk area for Somali piracy. And that makes hitching a ride on a cargo ship that little bit more difficult. And compounding all this, the Guinness World Records before I started said to me, you're not allowed to drive yourself and you're not allowed to hitchhike over land in case I went faster than the speed limit basically so it was all all the overland stuff was all done on buses and trains and bush taxis and public transportation the deal was if I had another member of the public with me it counted as public transportation and so that you know <laughs> added another dimension of, of sort of difficulty onto onto the journey but by the time I got to sort of 184 countries, I just thought, I've got to finish this. <laughs> I can't just give up right. now, even though the, the difficulty curve's just gone up through the roof. It's so insane. And I've traveled overland and cross borders and all that stuff. But then you just factor in all of these different sort of obstacles and this all these rules based around <laughs> what you had to do. It's absolutely incredible. And it says on your website that – you're the guy, and I kind of quote this, you're the guy who always says yes and then worries about how you're going to do it afterwards. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> to do something like this, it, it almost has to be that way. But is that how this whole thing started? You just kind of like one day saying, hey, I'm uh, I'm going to do this thing. I have no idea how, but uh, but this is it. When did this all start? I mean, the wanting to go to every country in the world started when I was a kid. I used to go on sort of caravan trips, camping trips around Europe. And it was about around the time that the USSR fell apart. And suddenly we had all these countries that we could never go to before without, you know, difficult visas uh, suddenly opened to us, like uh, Hungary, East Germany, Czechoslovakia, Poland. And I, found, I, I just found that all really exciting. And as soon as I finished university, I, I started saving up to go traveling. And I spent a year going around the world. I went to India and Southeast Asia, Australia, New Zealand, and all around South America and just loved it. And then the years after that, I uh, worked as a, as a video director in Liverpool. And whenever I'd go away anywhere, I'd always you know, shoot videos of what I was doing. And this is before YouTube. So <laughs> it was kind of just home videos that I was using at the time. I didn't really have a, a mind for it to go online. Well, about 2008, summer of 2008, I was looking for my next big project. My 30th birthday was looming and I wanted to have done something, you know, uh, something quite sort of interesting, I guess. And I took the yeah. concept. I'd say a little bit more than that. It's, yeah, audacious. <laughs> <laughs> well, I took the concept to Lonely Planet in Australia. 
Australia in Melbourne, and I sent off a, a pitch video to them, which you can view online if you go on my on my YouTube page. And um, off the back of that, they invited me in, and luckily I was in Australia at the time. And they they invited me in for a chat, and they said. Do you want to make a TV show of this? And I was like, okay then. I thought that was a fantastic idea. What happened was I, I took my trusty camcorder out with me and I filmed myself as I went and sent the tapes over to Australia and they put a, the first year of my travels together into a TV show. So you can read all along with your adventures on the Odyssey Expedition, your website. And I was reading through it last night. And man, I really encourage people to read it. I know you finished this trip in November of 2012, but... It takes you right there and to just hear, oh, I went to every country in the world, but then to read, you know, sentences like uh, you you were in Congo and, and there was nowhere to buy hot food. So you had to, quote unquote, make do with a fly covered stick of bread and a five year old tin of sardines. This is a true adventure. This is no joke. So I want to hear a few of your stories. I know, you know, from getting thrown in prison to dealing with officials and what was your low point, I guess? And then on the flip side, what was your high point here? I mean, there were, there were a few difficult sort of obstacles to get past, usually regarding islands. The biggest mistake I made on the journey, the lowest point of the journey was I got into a situation in Senegal in which I didn't organized my own transport. I had someone do it on my behalf. And it was the only time that I'd ever sort of let go of the reins of the horse, if you like, and let someone else sort of help me get on, on my way in that in that respect. And it, it really did blow up in my face. I ended up taking this leaky wooden canoe, a pirogue, a fisherman's boat, over 400 kilometers to Cape Verde Islands uh, with these local fishermen. There, were t- there, was, there was no safety equipment. There was no radio. Um, there were no oars or anything, you know, it, it was just an outboard motor on the back of a, a wooden canoe, effectively out in the open ocean. Upon our arrival, I hadn't organized properly uh, so that the authorities would know what we were doing and hadn't really thought through the consequences of me turning up on a boat with a bunch of Africans in another country. In the end, they regarded my facts that we had sent from the UK to tell them that we were coming as a tip-off because it was mistranslated. And um, I ended up getting thrown in jail in Cape Verde for, along with the fishermen for, for six days, which was an absolute nightmare, to say the least. And eventually we were let out on the sixth day because we hadn't actually committed any crime. And the fishermen were sent back to Senegal. They were actually flown back. We couldn't go back on their boat, so I had to find another way of getting back to the mainland. And that, that took a long time, it's about six weeks for me to escape from Cape Verde. And that really was the point where I realized I wasn't gonna get this done in a year. It was gonna be a than I thought, because up to that point, you know, I've been to about 89 countries at that point. It, it had been a simple tick list. It had been going around South America, the Caribbean, Central America, North America, and Europe. And with a British passport, that pretty straightforward, even in places in the Caribbean where there's no you know, ferry service, there's lots of little boats running around and each, each of the islands so close that it's only overnight sailed from one island to the next. So this was something new. It was that point where I had to decide whether to continue on with the journey or just give up at that point. And I'm, I'm a bloody minded sort, so I didn't give up. I, I continued on. I was eventually rescued from Cape Verde by a German guy called Milan and his uh, French friend Sebastian. They came over in their little sailboat from one of the other islands in the Cape Verde chain. And uh, they picked me up and took me back to Senegal and I continued my journey. 
that was the biggest stumbling block at the beginning. And then Congo and lightning struck again. I was again arrested. This time, no charge whatsoever. Yeah, you're good at getting arrested for not really doing anything wrong, <laughs> yeah. right? That's kind of like one of your specialties now. and again I was held for six days this time in this police station in in Libreville the capital and that that was most unpleasant I think that was the point where I I sort of put my head in my hands and thought what the hell am I doing they put me in this cell they they took my shoes and socks they took my my top and they took my glasses so I couldn't actually see (laughs) just kicked me in this cell and I was like what have I done (laughs) you know what what on earth have I done to deserve this? And what infuriated me was how blasé the police were. They, they were kind of like, well, what's your problem? What are you moaning about? They, you know, they, they didn't understand why I might be a little bit perturbed or upset that they were keeping me in a jail cell. And when I got out, I had to make the decision whether I was going to finish this no matter what. And that's the decision that I made. And I was another three years after that on the road. So that resolve that the Congo put into me uh, helped me out in the end. Yeah, I suppose that going into something like this, it's so grandiose that you know things are going to happen. But then reality hits pretty hard when you're sitting in a jail cell and you literally don't know if you're going to – I'm just putting myself in your shoes, which I don't even think you had shoes on at the time (laughs) (laughs) when you were in jail. You know, you don't know if – if or when you're going to get out, you have no idea what's going to happen. It's That's yeah. pretty scary stuff, man. To be honest with you, at the time, I was too angry to be scared. I was just really pissed. I, just, I was just like, what, what are you doing this? Why are you doing this to me? I was like, kicking the door with my bare feet and just generally being an uncooperative prisoner. And I watched uh, the movie, The Lives of Others, a German movie about the Stasi in East Germany just after I got out of jail, really. And in it, the guy says... He's, top interrogator for the secret police and he he says when they're guilty they tend to be quiet and when they're innocent that's when they kick up a fuss and start being a problem to you and I thought that's absolutely right because when you're innocent when you've done absolutely nothing wrong and you're not thinking in the back of the head well you know it's a fair cop I suppose I kind of deserve this you you start freaking out I think that's just (laughs) just the human condition this raging sense of injustice that you normally reserve for the end of a movie yeah, I don't know if you're a, a glutton for punishment doing this trip or just a sucker for adventure or, or perhaps both. I'm not sure. <laughs> Those were the low points and, and I think that they were in, in the minority massively. Most of the time I was having a ball. I was staying with local people. I was traveling on public transport. So everywhere I went, I was chatting to local people and just getting to see these places for myself, even some of the places that I just passed through and and wished to return to in the next few years. It was just an experience. And and when I talk about the high points of my journey, I've I've got so many in my head. Um, I, I got to watch a space shuttle take off from Florida, one of the last space shuttles. I, I got to climb the Great Pyramid of, of Giza in Egypt. We broke in in the middle of the night and climbed it. <laughs> this is something I wanted to do since I was a child. And we didn't get caught, unlike those Russians. I swam with this lake of jellyfish in Palau in, in the Pacific. These jellyfish have evolved not to sting. They've got no predators, they've got no enemies. And they make their energy through photosynthesis. And so there's enough food for everybody so this 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 lake there's billions of these jellyfish and you're swimming in it's like being on a, on another planet like another world i had a close encounter with a with an orangutan in, in borneo with a lemur in madagascar there was just so many experiences along the way that were just incredible i think one of my favorite was when i was in papua new guinea i was taken out on a boat by one of the people who worked for the shipping company that i was a 
eventually going to take from Papua New Guinea to Solomon Islands and then on to Australia, uh, over to an isolated tribe. There was no road to get to this tribe uh, in Papua New Guinea. I got to stay a couple of days with them. And that was an amazing experience where I was the only Westerner in this tribe. And, you know, I, I slept there and ate there. It was fantastic. It was just a, a real experience and something that I, I probably never thought would happen beforehand and, and but afterwards it becomes so obvious you're in Papua New Guinea of course you're going to stay with the tribe I could I could wax lyrical all, all night about the different places that I, I visited and, and the wonderful things that happened to me while I was there when you were in Papua New Guinea with the tribe did they accept you in after a little while how did that whole dynamic work did you just show up there or tell me a little bit more about that there were two occasions actually when I stayed with tribes and both times I was introduced by a member of the tribe who will be a chief or chief son of the tribe when you think tribe you think oh everyone's sitting around a campfire and it wasn't quite like that it was more a village a town with, with you know a road down the middle Although it wasn't connected to any other roads and, and houses, you know, well-built houses either side and, and then, you know, kids playing on the beach. And there was a church there. There was a, a school. It was just great to watch people sort of do their everyday lives. The guy took me out on a dugout canoe and we got to see the, the, the women who go out and they collect mud crabs from the mangroves. And the men go out and they fish during the day and the children go to school. Then when I got back to the main city of Ley, that weekend they were having the Morobi show, which is uh, Morobi is, is the area, the province that Ley is within. And they invite the Highlanders and people from all over Papua New Guinea to come uh, for a big sing-sing, which is you know, a big song and dance routine. And each tribe has their own language. They have their own way of dressing own costumes and, and their own songs. It was just a, a fantastic, fantastic experience to be there with all these you know, warrior people uh, with the makeup on and the war paint and amazing, you know, bird of paradise feathers coming out their heads and stuff. It was just people, people go to Papua New Guinea with a lot of trepidation. And I have to say, it's quite a dangerous place. If you're lucky, <laughs> I think I'm quite lucky. It can just be so amazing. It can be so otherworldly, you know, something that you wouldn't expect. We'll be back in a moment. This episode is brought to you by U.S. Bank. Recently, I went out for tacos, and it wasn't even Friday. Yes, we have Taco Friday in Norway, not Taco Tuesday. Well, more importantly, I could have earned rewards for every scrumptious bite of those chorizo soft shells. Introducing the U.S. Bank Altitude Go Visa Signature Card. Earn four times points when you go out for dining or order takeout and restaurant delivery, including tacos. Plus, you can earn two times points when you shop for or order your groceries, two times points when you need to fill up or charge up at gas stations and EV charging stations. You're even rewarded with two times points just for your favorite streaming services. Go to usbank.com slash altitude. Go! To learn more about how you can earn 20,000 bonus points worth $200 if you spend $1,000 in the first 90 days of opening your account. Win big with the U.S. Bank Altitude Go Visa Signature Card. Visit usbank.com slash Altitude Go to apply. Limited time offer. The creditor and issuer of this card is U.S. Bank National Association pursuant to a license from Visa USA, Inc. Some restrictions may apply. This episode of Zero to Travel is presented by the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder. From muddy jungle paths and snowy trails to rolling sand dunes, the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder has the capability to take you to some of the most epic destinations on Earth. We're excited to partner with Nissan because our listeners know we love to celebrate the joy of exploring the world and finding the best off-the-beaten-path destinations to visit. And there's no better vehicle for that than the 2024 Nissan 
Pathfinder. With seven drive modes, the Pathfinder's available intelligent 4x4 is built for even the most epic journeys, and it even has the best towing capacity in its class, up to 6,000 pounds, so you can bring the fun with you. But Nissan also knows that it's not just about where you go. In a Pathfinder, the real fun comes from getting there, and that's something we love celebrating here on the Zero to Travel podcast. We believe that life is about finding that joy within the journey itself, and that's why We're thrilled to partner with Nissan to celebrate adventurers everywhere. So thanks again to Nissan for sponsoring this episode of Zero to Travel and for the reminder to chase bigger, better, more exciting adventures and enjoy the ride along the way. Learn more at NissanUSA.com. Now, back to the show. I wanted to ask you a little bit. I know this has obviously changed your whole life because you obviously have some celebrity now and then amongst travelers i mean you're like a, a superhero in a way <laughs> i mean we're really it's amazing what you've what, what you've yeah man i know you're a humble guy but you know what you've done is truly an awesome accomplishment i mean i think it's inspiring on a couple levels one is the guinness record is great but just i mean the fact that you've done something that hadn't been done before and also just for budget travelers independent travelers people listening to the show people like myself you know you did it on like 100 bucks a week and you had this crazy goal and just with what you've done, we don't have any excuses anymore not to go anywhere, right? <laughs> well, no, I mean, that's the thing. It, it's, you know, I wouldn't want to be in the position where, you know, I say to someone, yeah, go to Papua New Guinea on your own, you'll be fine. But I would like people to travel more and I would like people to get out of their comfort zone a little bit more and go and see the world. Because one of the things that I grew up with, and I'm sure you grew up with, were loads of news stories telling you the worst of what was happening. The world isn't as scary as people think. Yeah. It's a case of just picking where you go. Somalia is a good example of this because Somalia used to be three different countries. It used to be Italian Somalia, British Somalia, and French Somalia. Now, French Somalia is now Djibouti. And British Somalia and and Italian Somalia all got lumped together as what we now call Somalia. But the region of British Somalia, which calls itself Somaliland, is remarkably peaceful. They have their own currency. They have their own government. They have their own flag. And they have free and fair elections, which are quite rare for that region. You can visit Somaliland and the chances are you'll be fine. You know, you, you get to see a little bit of Somalia. You know, go and see the world, but make sure you do your research first and pick the places that you want to see. And so long as there's not an active you know, uprising going on there, you know, nine times out of 100, you'll, you'll be fine. Most countries aren't fighting most countries will welcome you with open arms, especially places that don't get too many tourists. Like I found Central Asia, like Uzbekistan and Kyrgyzstan and, and Iran, you know, exceptionally friendly countries. Yeah. Yeah. The media, like you said, it really can skew the way uh, we perceive the world. It's not as dangerous as you think. And then obviously when you're in these countries, meeting people on the ground, you realize they're, you know, we're all human beings and we're all you know, doing what we need to do. And I don't know, that's one of the beautiful things about traveling. And I want to pick your brain like crazy on a lot of the practical stuff. Obviously, you're a budget overland guru. (laughs) So I wanted to hear some more of your tactics, I guess, and just some things that we as, uh, you know, independent travelers, long-term travelers can implement when we're on the road that you've learned in in your vast experience. But first, I wanted to touch a little bit on WaterAid, because I know you did some of this for WaterAid, which is a charity. I know that's near and dear to your heart. So tell us a little bit about that and how we can get involved or help. The remarkable thing is, you know, in this day and age, is there are 2 million children who die every year through lack of access to safe water, clean water. This happens mostly in developing countries. But 
it's something so simple that it should be a basic human right. And there are people working very hard around the world to actually eradicate this kind of needless suffering. They reckon by about 2030, if we all band together, every child on the planet will have access to clean, fresh water, which means so much. I mean, it's not just for the sake of children who are dying. It's also to free up women who have to walk because usually the matriarch of the family is the one who has to walk four miles to to a dirty well to get the water each day. And that takes a lot of her time up. And so she can't do anything else with her time. So it's important with other things, knock-on effect like the emancipation of women. It is something that I think, in, you know, we're, we're in the 21st century now and we've all got mobile phones and laptop computers and things. And it just makes me think, you know, we have to really get the basics right as well. You know, it's, it's all well and good having this amazing technology that we have these days. But if we can't get clean water to people, then we're not doing our job right at the end of the day. And one of the cool things about WaterAid, as opposed to, say, some other charities, not to disparage them, but one of the problems I think we do have with charities is sometimes the money goes to the wrong place. And sometimes the charity will come in, they'll dig a well or they'll build a toilet and then they'll leave the village. But the problem is the villagers don't really know what to do with this toilet thing that they've been given. It's not been part of their culture. It's not been part of their life. And so they think, oh, well, it's a nice little place to keep some goats when it's when it's raining. For people to actually value what they've got, what uh, WaterAid and other water en- engineering charities like uh, Engineers Without Borders over in America and up in Canada do, they actually go into villages and they, first of all, explain why the people should have toilets and then they help to build them. So it's not just a case of, you know, dropping some charity down on people and walking away. It's a case of people actually building their own thing. And we find time and time again that when people have to work for something, they tend to treasure it more. They tend to look after it. I'd love to see a day when no child on this planet dies of diarrhea. I mean, it's, it's ridiculous. It's, it's one of the most easily preventable and most easily treated, cheaply treated diseases in the world. It's not something that's long term. It's something that costs a few pence in terms of sugar and salt solution. And it can really save a child's life. So that's why I picked WaterAid, because I think for any backpackers who have <laughs> been somewhere like India and had to deal with the toilets, it's something that gets very close to our hearts. My attitude is, well, look, I just have to use this toilet for a few days or a few weeks. The people who live here have no choice. And that's what I wanted to help change. When I was traveling, we raised over $10,000 along the way. When my book about my journey comes out, hopefully later this year, a cut of the proceeds from that are going to go to WaterAid as well. So hopefully we'll end up making quite a lot of money for them. Great. And I'll link out to your page, but where do we find you as far as if we want to donate through you to WaterAid? If you go onto the odysseyexpedition.com page, there's a link on the right-hand side, or you can go straight to justgiving.com forward slash the Odyssey Expedition, and that'll take you to um, the Just Giving donation page. You know, we're, we're not asking for boosters. We're not asking for hundreds and hundreds of dollars, but just if someone who enjoys reading my blogs or enjoys watching my videos would like to throw sort of five, ten dollars into the pot, it honestly could save a child's life. I have enjoyed your videos and your blogs, so I'll be sure to, to go ahead and do that. Yeah, I, I appreciate everything you're putting out there. Oh, in your case, Jason, we do want a hundred dollars. <laughs> you got it, buddy. No problem, man. <laughs> I'm committing to that right my now. You can hold me to it, podcast. my man. You can hold me to it. Now, I want to switch gears to okay. practical stuff because, you know, 
part of the show. Obviously, it's it's inspiring to hear about the journey. You know, you have so much experience with your traveling that I feel like obviously we have something to learn from you that we can use in our travels, whether it's a three-week trip or a three-month trip or, you know, four-year trip like you did. So just wanted to ask you a few questions that maybe you could provide some practical advice for us. Uh, hitching ride on cargo ships, something I've heard about, I know it exists, but I have no experience with it. I'm just wondering how you go about that. Well, it, it's tremendously difficult. And I think those days of people just turning up at a port and saying, hey, can I get on board this ship? And the captain saying, okay, well, you can swap the decks and you can come along. They're over. I mean, you, it, it, it's very difficult to do that. Maybe in some parts of the Caribbean and in Africa and possibly in, in some parts of the Middle East, it might still be possible. But by and large, ports are like airports now, you know, they've got a big perimeter fence around them. You can't just be rocking up and asking to get on a ship. What I did was I approached it this way. I would write to the charterer of the ship, which would be one of these big companies like Maersk or CMACGM. I'd looked up their timetables to find out which ships were going in the direction I wanted to go. And I made sure that my plans were pretty free and easy. You know, I'd have a month window or something to, to get out the country. And I had, say, three different options of where to go. And then off the back of that, I'd write to them and say, hi, my name is Graham Hughes. I'm traveling to every country in the world. It's my dream. And I'm raising money for the charity Water Aid. And I'm also making a TV show that's screening on the National Geographic Adventure Channel. Because I had those kind of credentials, I got a lot more positive responses than I would have got if I was just a chancer, if I had just you know, written, said, hey, I just want to get on your ship. And also one thing that I found very quickly was, you know, I, I didn't have a staff working for me back in England or anything. But what I'll do is get one of my friends to write on my behalf. Sometimes I'll write the email and say, can you send this from your account? And then it was, I am writing on behalf of Graham Hughes, British adventurer, blah, blah, blah. And that sort of elevated my position a little bit with the with the chartering company. And then it was just a case of making some phone calls with the local agents and trying to get on board. And to do that, I needed permission, not just from the charters, but also from the owners of the vessel and the local agents and the captain of the ship. So sometimes one of those four would say no, and I'd be waiting, you know, to go outside the port with all my bags and they say, no, you can't get on board. Uh, okay, back to square one. The trick is to try, try and try again. These ships do have empty cabins on board. Usually the captain and the crew and the officers are quite happy to have a supernumerary, an extra personnel on board. It's not a huge problem for them, but I think a few shipping companies sort of look at it as, as an inconvenience, especially in terms of insurance. Like if you're going to fall overboard or get ill and they have to change course because of you. My little bit of advice for fellow travelers is offer some money. Say you'll pay $50 a day or something like that for your room and board. And also when you're writing to these companies and you're looking for who to write to, try and find someone who's got the title captain. Because that means that they'll be a little bit older, they would have served on a ship, and now they're semi-retired, and they're living in Wellington or, or in Paris or London or somewhere, and they're still working for the company, but in an office. They'll have that kind of sailor's mentality of, yeah, sure, get off board, a bit more than someone who's straight out of university, never been at sea, and just sort of thinks, this is going to be an inconvenience, I can't be bothered. But even with sort of my credentials and, and, and the fact that I'd already developed a, a good working relationship with a few of these big companies, 
I still find it difficult. And sometimes I'll be in a situation in which, you know, nine companies out of 10 were turning me down flat and saying, we just do not take passengers at all. The other thing to look at is a few companies, I think CMA, CGM are doing this, are actually offering cargo cruises now where you come on the ship as as a passenger and you actually pay for it, but they're a little bit expensive. So I would still at least try to go down the hitchhiking route first. And from my experience, the smaller companies are usually easier to get a, a yes from. But once you get one of those big companies behind you, like Maersk, CMACGM, Hamburg, Sword, something like that, they can usually help you time and time again. The guys at PIL, who are based out of Singapore, were absolutely fantastic. And they helped me get from Papua New Guinea to Australia, Australia all around the Pacific Islands to uh, New Zealand, and then even from Australia up to Taiwan, so I could get to Palau and Federated States of Micronesia. So they were they were incredible. Oh, and they also helped me get from Singapore to Sri Lanka, which is one of the last countries I needed to get to. PIL were amazing, and and so it's just a case of go online, do some research, and look at some timetables, find out where these ships are going. I don't think anyone would reply to an email that said, hey, I'm thinking of going somewhere where your ship's going, question mark. It's it's not going to (laughs) work. Right. I mean, everything you just said is super actionable and totally doable. And for listeners that don't necessarily have uh, Graham's credentials, I mean, you can still create your own credentials in a way. I don't think you necessarily have to be traveling to every country in the world. And I know you're definitely not the only person that's got on cargo ships, but it is possible, but I think that your advice was really actionable. Great stuff. Yeah, you should, you should have a mission. You should have, be able to say, I'm doing it because, not just I'm doing it because it, it sounds like fun. I mean, even if it's I'm mortally afraid of flying or something and I, I, I've got to get to Europe for some reason. I mean, yeah, yeah <laughs> have not, some kind of a, yeah, some kind of connection there. A little bit creative in your reasons for wanting to get on a cargo ship. But I've got to say, it's a fascinating experience. These ships are amazing machines. And just being cut off from the outside world for a few days because you've got no telly, you've got no radio, you've got no cell phone reception, got no internet. So being cut off in that way is strangely liberating in this day and age. Absolutely. Yeah, I'm sure that's when you got a lot of writing done too. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. How do you avoid giving bribes? Because I noticed that's something when I was reading through the Odyssey expedition that it seems like you're pretty against that. And what's your advice to avoid giving bribes to officials to get through? Is it just being stubborn or? Act dumb, smile a lot, just be really cheerful. Do what really helps if you're born in Liverpool, especially if you're traveling around Africa because Liverpool Football Club is really big in Africa. So when they ask to see my passport and it says place of birth, Liverpool, they all smile. Oh, Liverpool, yeah, we love your club. That that helps me out. Not so much in the French-speaking countries, never mind. I think being a, a little bit stubborn and, and, and at least playing dumb a little bit, but I think the, the main thing is to smile. If you can try and get a little bit of rapport going between you and the guy who's obviously going to ask you for a bribe because you know it, it, it's obvious they're going to do it, it can work wonders. Another thing is I don't smoke and I didn't really carry any cigarettes with me while I was driving around, but some other backpackers have said they always carry a packet of cigarettes if uh, officials, you know, not being very helpful, they offer them a cigarette and that can help oil the, the wheels, if you like, of not having to actually pay a bribe. But then you'll be giving him lung cancer. So, you know, it, it's kind of, I, I didn't want to go down that route. It can be very frustrating and, and very annoying, especially if you're 
in a rural area, there's no ATMs around. You've only got a set amount of money on you. You know, I'd, I'd always have a $100 bill hidden on my purse and somewhere in case of emergencies. But I didn't want to have to get that out to buy a $1 loaf of bread or something. So if the, an official took all my change, I was kind of like, oh, great, what do I do now? <laughs> Where am I going to change this money? Who's going to change it? They're going to give me a terrible exchange rate. So there are a lot of knock-on effects of having to pay all these bribes all the time. My advice would be, yeah, have a packet of cigarettes and, and maybe just have a, a wad full of $1 bills or something that you can just pop out. I actually had two wallets with me as well. I had one that was stuffed full of $1 bills and had some expired credit cards in it. If anyone ever mugged me, I'd give them that. But I was never mugged. So happy days. <laughs> there you go. You went to cross 201 international borders and you never got mugged. So we can't use that as an excuse anymore, right? <laughs> no, no. Uh, I didn't even get ill. I, I just did very well. I think I'm just very lucky. But another thing you can do, uh, talking about the wallet trick, is take your wallet out and have a wallet that's got nothing in it and just open it and go, like, I just have $1 and just say, oh, this is all I've got. Uh, I need to go to the town and get some more money. I'm sorry. I, I just, and then they'll, they'll probably take you $1 and go, all right, go on, go on, go on. So if you make it a little bit more hassle for them to just go through with the operation and make them force them to actually say what they want, because a lot of the time it's it's kind of unspoken, you know, it's kind of, they just sort of rub the, the, the thumb against the forefinger and, you know, and you're like, what, what, what do you mean by that? What, do you want, do you want some salt? Is that, is that what <laughs> yeah. you want? That? Don't right. be too cheeky or you might end up in jail for a week in Congo. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we don't want that, especially after reading your article. That wasn't being cheeky, that was being grumpy, basically. I got pulled over, the, the cops obviously wanted to bribe, and I was just, I was just too tired and annoyed. And I was just like, you're not getting any money off me. Go away. You know, but come on. I've, I've got to go into town. I've got a pizza ready for me. And <laughs> I'm going to sing karaoke tonight. <laughs> Which six days later, you got to sing it <laughs> after being in prison, I guess. So I guess that just goes along with your advice to just be try to be cheerful no matter what your mood. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So outside of couch surfing, which I know you used a lot, what other share economy type of services do you recommend or what other you know techniques do you recommend just for keeping on a budget? So I used couch surfing a lot and I made a lot of really good friends with the couch surfing network and have any really real bad experiences with it. I know Airbnb are very good, but you do have to pay for that. One of the easy tricks that you can do is get on a overnight bus accommodation for the night. <laughs> <laughs> and also, if, if you can sort of walk in, if you're not too scruffy and you don't have your big backpack with you, you can usually walk into some quite nice hotels and just make out that you're staying there and ask the concierge if you can just use the, you've got a meeting and you need to freshen up and you go into the, the private bathroom there, you can have a nice warm shower in the middle of Kinshasa or somewhere. There's a few little tricks you can do. You know, when I was in Sri Lanka, I, I slept on the beach a few times, not because I didn't have anywhere to stay. I actually did. It was just that hot and there were sun lounges out there and it was quite nice to sleep on the beach. No one stole my thing. So, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I've definitely crashed outside in numerous places around the world and uh, it's the best. Obviously, there is a difference there. If, if you're female, I think you probably won't get away with that. But one of the good things about sort of couch surfing, for instance, and some of these other things you can choose your gender of the people that you're staying with so if you're a female traveling on her own you can just stay with other females which is a lot safer and also you've got someone waiting for you in each town and city that you go to and if you don't turn up they're going to start wondering why you haven't turned up and can start raising alarm bells it just adds a little layer of safety and when i get the example of congo it was actually christoph the guy who i was supposed to be couch surfing with who raised the alarm that i had been 
taken in by the police and actually told the British Embassy. Uh, after my experience in Cape Verde, I carried two mobile phones with me. You know, both of them were just really cheap Nokia's. I gave the police one, and the other one I texted, so it came up on my tweet Twitter account. I've been arrested. And he came to the police station and he was trying to sort things out for the police at me. And when I did finally escape and I did get out, I got to stay with him. So I can't say enough good things about Couchsurfing and, and, and those other networks. And I know there's a few people who have had bad experiences on it, but if you're sensible and you research the people that you're staying with and you make sure that they're accredited and they've been vouched for, I think most people will have a whale of a time. You know, you were safety conscious carrying two mobile phones and two wallets. And those are all great tips, particularly if you're traveling through, you know, more dangerous areas. A little pouch that I stuffed down, it hung on my belt, like a little loop on my belt that you couldn't see. And then I stuffed down my pants, basically, and just walked around. And I had my emergency money in it. It had a little pen knife in it. It had an emergency credit card that I could use for an account account that I didn't touch while I was traveling unless there was a problem. So, I mean, there were things in place in case everything went horribly wrong. But luckily, I, you know, even when I was arrested, I got all my stuff back. So I was, I was all right on that front. I think another thing is you shouldn't have flashy things on you, obviously. And you see people traveling around and they've got the latest Canon 7D and they're in the middle of, you know, a farm in, in Namibia. And you're thinking, well, what, what are you doing? <laughs> Actually, Namibia is about to say, because you can't go. Democratic Republic of Congo. And you think, well, you know, someone might come along and say, oh, I'll have that, especially if you're on your own. So what I tended to do, my HD camcorder, it's pretty, it didn't look like much, even though it is quite a, a good camera. I kept it in a scruffy little bag. That was a khaki bag that was all sort of ripped and everything. My laptop was in another bag that had the names of all these countries written on it. So it just looked like a, an old school bag that I just, you know, just had pens and pencils in it. And I think that helped as well, sort of the, the disheveled travel look. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty scary because, you know, you got like basically this is your – you're documenting all this and this is, you know, your life, your media and your writing and all that stuff. So I'm sure it was pretty scary to, to make sure that you didn't lose all your work and all the video you shot. That's and... another great thing at the moment is we have – the cloud and so we can upload all of our photos and videos which we've been able to do it with photos for a while but not with videos and these days you can get sort of 25 gigabytes and if you've got someone else who's connected to the same cloud at home they can download your stuff to free up the space so every day you can make sure your videos are kept in a secure location and that's something well worth doing i remember you know i, I started backpacking back in the 90s and i remember the horror stories of people you know with the the rolls of film and they'd, they'd taken 26 of them and they'd left them in a bag in the taxi on the way to the airport or they'd put them through a, a, a weird old uh, x-ray machine and it had wiped them all. And, and so this day and age, I don't think there's any excuse for losing your cherished uh, pictures and, and videos and things like that. I mean, they make the best mementos. I'd rather have a wonderful picture of me in one of these countries with, with a few locals having a good laugh than you know, some, a bit of chintzy uh, thing to put on my mantelpiece. <laughs> right. Is there a cloud service you recommend quickly? Was there one you used? or No, when I was traveling, the cloud wasn't a big thing. What I used to do was I, I filmed on tape at the time. It wasn't on SD card. I recorded it onto these little Western digital hard drives that I had. 
and then I'd send them once I, once I had a collection of sort of ten tapes. I would send them by FedEx or DHL. DHL were pretty good actually to Australia for the TV show, and then after the TV show ended, I'd send them to my parents in the UK. So even if they did go missing or whatever, you know, I'd still have a copy. I did really well. I didn't lose a single tape. Thankfully, right? <laughs> I mean, you'd been through a lot of it. My camera did break a few times, and and surprisingly, some of the countries that you think wouldn't be able to fix your camera usually the best place to go to fix it i had a problem where the screen broke so i couldn't see well, i could see what i was filming through the viewfinder but i couldn't actually operate the buttons to make it do anything because it's a touch screen and i took it to a little place in nepal and they charged me 30 dollars and fixed it the next day i had the same problem the exact same problem in australia a couple of years afterwards I was only in Australia for a couple of weeks at the time, and I took it into the repair shop, and they said, that'll be $170, and you can come back in six weeks' time. And I was like... You're like, I'm going to go fly to Nepal right now. <laughs> oh, you couldn't get on a plane, I guess. But... Yeah, I'm going to fly to Kathmandu, <laughs> get it fixed there, fly right. back, it'll be cheaper. <laughs> I'll take my time. Exactly. <laughs> Just ask around. And, and this is another thing, you know, the amazing hospitality I was shown by people around the world, just really bowled me over. And we have this sort of, I don't know, fear of of strangers, fear of others, fear of foreigners. And it's so unfounded. Most people in the world are just like us. They're just trying to get on in life. And, you know, they just want to have a good time and meet the right person and be paid a decent wage for what they do. They're not out to cause you harm. They're not out to to get you and you could be anywhere in the world and stand there lost with your map on the street corner and someone will come over and say are you all right can i help with what you're looking for what was i found remarkable was places in africa where people had very very little will come over and share their food with me or you know just want to have a chat with me or, or even just point me in the right direction and that was that was just phenomenal and, and I although I was traveling alone I, I never really felt lonely I didn't feel like I was you know it was me against the world it was more kind of me with the world kind of pushing me forward and that was a really really positive experience yeah those are the most beautiful moments I think of traveling just the real human connections you make on the ground you know you were on the ground so to speak more than anybody <laughs> I've ever spoken with so you probably had a lot of opportunity for some amazing interactions, not having taken any planes anywhere. You know, that's just a whole other unique experience. Let's take a brief pause. We'll be right back. Would you love to have an incredible cup of coffee every day? I've tried it all. I've done the pour over. I've done the French press. But I tasted an AeroPress coffee many years ago. And immediately I was sold. I had to get one AeroPress is a patented three-in-one brew technology. This combines the flavor benefits of espresso, pour-over, and French press all into one compact portable device built for travel or home. I love things you can use in both places. This device has over 55,000 five-star reviews in over 60 countries. AeroPress is the best-reviewed coffee press on the planet. I've owned one for so many years, I don't even remember how long it's been. And they are under 50 bucks so they also make an exceptional gift, thoughtful, proven, tasty, and travel-oriented. Who wouldn't love that? Now, you get 20% off just for being a listener of this show at aeropress.com slash zero to travel. That's aeropress, A-E-R-O-P-R-E-S-S dot com slash zero to travel. That will save you 20% on checkout. Thanks to Aeropress for supporting today's show. 
Hey, it's Jason here. Did you know you are invited to join the first ever Zero to Travel community trip? Yes, we're planning a trip together. We're headed to Morocco November 30th through December 9th. And you can get all the details at zerototravel.com slash trip. It's open for booking now. We have 13 spots left at the time of this recording. And you have until the end of March to book. So if you're interested in traveling with an amazing community, this community, a small group of people on an incredible journey through Morocco together with me, Sign up over there at zerototravel.com slash trip to get all the details. Thanks for listening and hope to see you there. Let's get back to the show. Where would you love to return because you've been to all these places? This is just, you know, what's your one or two standout spots? Everywhere. Palau, uh, Ethiopia, Madagascar, Iran. I uh, only spent about half an hour in Panama. I got to the border and they wanted an onward ticket and i said well i haven't got an onward ticket and said well can you go to the place down the road and get yourself an onward ticket and i said okay so i walked into panama got my picture at the thing and bought a coke and then walked back out again not get my passport stamped but i've i've just won (laughs) an island in panama and i'm going to be living there for the next year so i'm going to go back i'm going to go back to pretty much everywhere that i i went to i'm only i'm only 34 (laughs) So I've got a few left in me and I'd love to go back some more time. Tell me a little bit about this island you won and how did you win it? Well, um, it, it, it's, it's so, uh, like, I came into the pub and said, I've won an island. And then my mates hardly looked up from their beers and just went, that sounds like something that you would say, Graham. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, it was, um, one of my videos, uh, which was inspired by uh, Caesar Kuriyama's video, One Second Every Day, which a lot of people are taking up now, which is a brilliant thing to do. I realized I had one second of footage of me in each country from all of the footage I got from my travels. So I put together a video called One Second Every Every Country. That got a lot of viewers over the summer. So I've had, had over a million views on YouTube, which is incredible. On that, there was an advert for this SOS Island thing by Samsung phones. And they were going to send 16 contestants out to this tropical island in, in, in just off the coast of Puerto Rico. And if you won, you won $100,000 towards an island experience of your choice. So to cut a long story short, I won. And they said, well, what do you want to do? Do you want to, do you want to uh, buy a plot of land in Tahiti? Do you want to stay on Necker Island with Richard Branson for a couple of days? And I'm like, no, I, I want to live on a deserted island for a year, like Robinson Crusoe. And everyone sort of looks at me like, okay, then uh, we'll, we'll make that happen. We got in touch with an island broker, this guy who runs uh, privateislandsonline.com. Uh, he does the TV show Island Hunters, which is a daytime TV show over in the States. And it's a bit like, you know, bargain hunters, property hunters or whatever, but it's a tropical island. And he put me on to the guy who sold his life on eBay about five years ago, this guy called Ian Usher. And he sold his entire life. He sold his house, his car, his motorbike, everything in it in one lot on eBay. And he went off traveling and did uh, like a hundred amazing things in a hundred weeks. And he's a fellow Brit like myself. So I think, I think it's something in the water over here. Um, And um, he found this island in Panama and he bought it a few years ago. And since then he's, put a house there and, and uh, solar panels and, and he's got chickens and a dog and all this kind of stuff. But he wants to move on. He wants to start traveling around the States and doing inspirational speaking. And so I came in and said, well, look, I can't afford to buy the whole island, but can I buy a section of it, you know, go in for a portion of it and have exclusive use of the island for a year. And then when you do come to sell it outright, I get my third back. And he said, 
yeah, sure, that sounds like a great idea. So, um, so that's what we're doing. And, and March the twenty second, me and my girlfriend leave here, leave wet and windy England for uh, for Panama, and uh, we're going to try and make a go of it. It should be quite interesting. We're going to call the island Ginger Island, spelled J I N J A, like ninja but ginger because I'm a ginger and my girlfriend's ginger too. It's going to be my, my next adventure. I think it's a fitting after going everywhere to spend the year going absolutely nowhere because once I'm on the island, I really can't leave the island. I've got animals to look after. I've got, you know, I have crops to tend to and things like that. And the idea would be we'll make it as self-sufficient as humanly possible. I mean, I want to get to a point where we can go for months without having to go back to the mainland for supplies. Totally living off the grid and just living off the land, basically. Yeah. And using sort of high technology and low technology as well. There's this amazing little stove called the BioLite stove. And you, you put twigs in it and burn it and, it and it heats a little element so you can cook your, your food on it smokelessly. But it's also got a USB jack so you can charge your mobile phone off it. So you can charge your for fire, which I think is brilliant. I've just been on, online and just looking at all these things that you can get. So I like the idea of, of going somewhere and starting a fire with a flint and having to, you know, eat eggs that are delivered by the chickens in the morning, but also having this technology that allows us to charge our mobile phones, get online and share our experiences with the world. Ginger Island. I love it. Are you going to keep writing about this on the odysseyexpedition.com or can we follow you with all this stuff? The odysseyexpedition.com is kind of closed now. That's that's over the complete stories there if you want to read it um, and it's free for anyone. It's, it's 600,000 words altogether. So it's a bit of an epic one just reading it. But there's uh, my website is grahamdavidhughes.com. And from there, that's going to be the platform that we, we, we market Ginger Island as, a, as another adventure for people to follow on there. The way I see it is, you know, I like I like to take people on the adventure and I'm not going to charge anyone. And, you know, they, they can read my stuff if they want. They can watch my videos if they want. It's, uh, it's not going to cost them anything. Yeah, I'm definitely going to check it out. I'm curious to see uh, what you share there. And man, you've done so many amazing things already and it seems like you're, you kind of keep going. I love, <laughs> I love that your mates are just looking up from their beer. Like, yeah, that, that sounds about right. <laughs> that is so funny, man. I don't know what you're going to do after, after this Island thing. I mean, I know you're working on this book and you know, if you do tour through the States and I happen to be in Colorado, you, you got a couch here, my friend. Oh, thank you. That would be great. I mean, that this is something that I intend to do to go to all the states of America without flying, because obviously the mainland states are going to be pretty simple. But then I'm also trying to get to Hawaii. And if I'm feeling very adventurous, I might throw Puerto Rico, uh, American Samoa, Guam, Saipan in there as well, just for giggles. I've, I've been to most of them already. But I got to Guam and they wouldn't let me off the boat because I didn't have a visa for America. That made me very... Oh, really? Yeah. They just changed the visa regulations and they said... Uh, oh, no, it's not a visa. You need that thing that's like a visa, but it's not a visa. And I said, is that the thing that you have to supply your photograph and a load of information and, and have to pay for it before you come to the country? And they're like, yeah, that sounds a lot like a visa. No, no, no. We yeah. make our <laughs> British friends have a visa to come to the States. They're welcome anytime. You're just not allowed off this boat. <laughs> so I had to just swim in Guam. I just sat on the boat all day. Never got to see Guam. I was, just, I was sick as a chip. But now I've got my American visa so I can come and go now for the next three years until I get put on the NSA's most wanted list or something. I don't know. They're probably listening to this right now. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, man, we love what you're doing and it's truly inspirational. I just really appreciate you taking time to share your story, but also 
all these amazing tips just for that we as travelers can use. I think you gave us a lot of stuff today. I'm going to put it all in the show notes on zero to travel.com. And I'm definitely going to be following you along. Like I said, you're welcome to crash here anytime if I'm around. Man, Graham, good luck on the island out there with your gal. And I really appreciate your time and keep going, brother. I love what you're doing. Brilliant. Thanks very much. There you have it. Hope you enjoyed my conversation with Graham Hughes. You know, I think we're overdue for a catch up with Graham. Maybe have him back on the show again since his trip. He's done a lot. I mean, I know he's writing books, but also he won an island and he's been building some properties there where people can come and stay. This is off the coast of Panama and he's become a bit of a political activist. So time to time to bring Graham back on. I'll give him a, I'll drop him a line. We'll see if we can get him back on the show for you. Now, I wanted to share three iconic overland trips that you might want to consider doing. And maybe you're inspired, extra inspired to do after hearing uh, this episode with Graham today. Now, I did boil it down to these three iconic trips. And here they are. First one, Cairo to Cape Town. This is known as a pretty epic journey. I don't know anything about planning it. I did read somewhere that it could take a minimum of four months if you're doing it overland on public transport, but that might be a little tight. And then I went to a really fun website. I don't know if you've ever been to Rome to Rio, Rome to the number two Rio, where you can look up uh, different ways you can get from point A to B. And one of the ways they include on this Cairo to Cape Town journey is driving. And they say it takes five days and 13 hours. So who knows? But I'm looking at the line right now from Cairo to Cape Town. And does that look like an epic journey or what? Really incredible. Now, the second overland mini adventure, if you want to compare it to Graham's, but still a huge adventure Uh, Very well known, the Silk Road. Of course, the old trade route that would link uh, the West to the Middle East and Asia. And we've had guests on in the past that have traveled parts of the Silk Road. Again, another epic journey to consider. And lastly, one that I'm super keen on is the Pan American Highway from Prudhoe Bay, Alaska, all the way down to the tip of South America, which will take you to Ushuaia, the southernmost city in the world, where I've been. A really amazing place in Tierra del Fuego, Argentina. And that is a journey I would love to do one day. That's probably at the top of my list. Now, there are official parts of the Pan American Highway, and then there's sort of the unofficial network. You can read all about it if you're curious, but that whole route there is a very sort of classic overland route. So something... To consider, I just wanted to give you a few different options, some itineraries, some ideas coming out of this because I think when we look at something like Graham did, it really opens up our minds to what's possible for us. And maybe it's one of these epic adventures. Uh, it's on a lesser scale, but we can't compare it to what Graham did. We can just know, hey, one person was able to do this. It just makes even these grand adventures that I just described, these three iconic overland journeys, seem more attainable, doesn't it? Just by hearing Graham's story. So I just love that about the podcast and the guests that come on here. They really make 
me feel like the world is, is so accessible and that travel is just something we can get out there and do. And we can do on any scale that, that we want. We're really limited by our minds and our thinking and, and, and the scales that we put ourselves on. So there you have it. I'm going to leave you with a quote, pulling a couple out of the quote drawer that I found recently. First one is from Lao Tzu, who said, music in the soul can be heard by the universe. I love that. I'm keeping that on my desk here. Second one, keep up and you will be kept up. That's by Yogi Bhajan. Keep up and you will be kept up. Keep up. Keep being kept up. Keep on keeping on. Love you. Thanks for listening. And I'll see you next time. Peace and love. This podcast has been brought to you by ZeroToTravel.com. Ideas and advice to make your travel dreams a reality.